This is Swordplay, and I'm Nick Perez. Alex, gangsta rapper Snoop Dogg has released a gospel album. Did you get your copy yet? Well, Nick, as Jesus said, I try not to give to dogs what is holy, so I'll keep my pearls. Thanks. <laughs> By the way, this is this is the third change in a decade of religion for Snoop Dogg, I guess. He joined the Nation of Islam in 2009, then switched to become a Rastafarian in 2012. So I hope what's it a, sticks. What's a Rastafarian? Um, it, it has to do with like reggae stuff and I think smoking weed. So, <laughs> Well, I don't think that ever changed for Snoop Dogg. So. This is Swordplay and we are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. And I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On Nick, this episode of Swordplay, the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, Nick, I think we are going to start out with the tough text of the day. Tough That's right, tough text. Um, for Second Peter, the tough text is, did Simon Peter write the book of Second Peter? It's a strange question because verse 1 says Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. You're right, but hey, it's here's here's the here's the um, the background for it. This second Peter is written very different from first Peter. It's got a different style and a different tone. And so how can we possibly claim that the same Peter wrote first and second Peter? So in other words, Nick, are you trying to say that maybe this is uh, a pseudonym, that it was written by somebody else who claimed to be Second Peter in order to give it a sense of authority? That's the argument, yep. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, what would be uh, the argument if you wanted to say it really was written by Peter? Well, that's a good question. First, um, let's talk about who actually put pen to parchment for both of these books. Um, First Peter, we're told by Peter himself in First Peter 5 and verse 12 that it's with the help of Silas that he has written First Peter, whereas Second Peter, you don't get that same information. Um, for whatever yeah. reason, it seems that Peter doesn't have, the big word for it is an amanuensis, just a secretary, someone who wrote for you. Um, and so, uh, yeah, Peter, this is just Peter who actually puts the pen to parchment now, and that can explain the difference in the style. Um, as far as the tone, First Peter deals with different stuff than Second Peter. <laughs> right, um, right. First, First Peter is a very encouraging letter as these Christians are going through suffering and intense persecution, and he wants to build the church up with that. Second Peter... One of the big themes is, especially in chapter two, has to do with false teaching and false teachers and the heretics that they bring in their heresy, and and so very different, very different tone because very different subject matter. True. Now, Nick, Second Peter chapter two, which we'll get to next time, sounds a lot like the letter of Jude. Is that back of why people are saying this is maybe not written by Peter? Yeah, it could be, um, and it could just be. Hey, they pull from similar texts or similar concepts. Um, these could just be prevalent ideas that Jude and Peter um, are both aware of and and tapped into to write their respective works. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. Another possibility, too, is just that if you got the same Holy Spirit inspiring different apostles, is it not reasonable he would see the same sort of uh, language and arguments being used? I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit too supernatural in my approach to Scripture, but it does seem like a supernatural book. Yeah, it does. Um, so, and I, I think it's. I think we're in pretty well agreement that this Second Peter was written by the apostle Simon Peter. And, I think that's um, safe ground. What? So, well, so some of the early Protestant reformers were struggling with this, though, right? They struggled with admitting into the uh, quote-unquote canon Second Peter and Jude, and uh, were those the only ones? I can't remember. James, uh, James was in question. Yeah, you always throughout church history. There's always question marks on some of the books. I know for a little bit, Revelation, there was a question mark about that. But um, whatever questions they had, it seems they've resolved those. And and now Second Peter and Jude and Revelation and <laughs> they're they're all in there, and I think rightly so. And I think too, when you look at the earliest codexes that we have. Codex Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, uh, Bizet, Ephraim, these, uh, these contain Second Peter, if I'm not mistaken. So if our earliest codexes have Second Peter, to me, you got to be reading the same kind of things that the early church had on their mind, that they thought it was important enough to save, to copy, to preserve. I think that's good enough to put it in the Bible. Well, I think we've handled that one pretty well. I guess we can move on here. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the next question, Nick? Let's see. Verse 1. And by the way, um, before we get too far into this, folks, if you've not read First Second uh, Peter chapter 1, now would be a good opportunity. Hit pause. Yep. Read through the chapter. It's only, what, 21 verses? Um, read it over again, uh, maybe read it one more time, and then come back, hit play, and, and join us back with this discussion. I um, bet people could finish the whole book, three chapters, in less than 15 minutes. If you're driven, if you really want to, <laughs> go for it. Um, it's always good to be go reading your Bible. Well, oh, wait. Uh, Nick, should we plug our website? At the end. Um, okay. <laughs> let's, and, and we'll try to remember that. Um, so verse 1, verse 1. Um, Peter says, he calls himself a servant, apostle of Jesus Christ, um, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says they're um, a faith of equal standing with ours. Is, is Peter contrasting other faiths here? What's he doing here, Alex, with this faith of equal standing with ours? Yeah, that's a good question. My uh, my translation, the New American Standard, it says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind yeah. as ours. Now, at first, when I read this, I wanted to, I was really thinking, no, I mean, it's just another way of saying we have this faith in common. And I think it's just, you know, it was just Peter's way of starting out. But then as I looked back over the letter, I started to think, you know, there is a contrast between the faith of Peter and the apostles and what they teach as the apostolic faith handed down to the church versus what we're going to get into in chapter 2, the false prophets and the uh, false teachers. So I would say, yeah, there probably is a contrast going on. He's, he's writing to those who have uh, continued to persevere with and, and hold fast to the faith 
that the apostles handed on, that the apostles and prophets of Jesus Christ handed on, as opposed to switching over to some distorted version of it that these false prophets in chapter 2 are presenting. What do you think, Nick? No, that, that makes sense. Um, for me, what's interesting is that these Christians have, uh, my translation says they've obtained uh, this faith. Um, uh, literally, it, it means to receive this faith. Um, mm-hmm. And what's interesting about the word is it's a it's a the idea that that they receive something it means it had to be given and that, so is the faith in God is this something that is God given um, and that that faith which is necessary for salvation is that kind of a divine gift it's not something we typically think of when it comes to um, faith uh, typically we think of faith as being something that we do and yet, here you have Peter saying you received this faith or obtained this faith. That would be you have to get it from somewhere, and then, so they would get it from God. You have uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter six, talking about um, how faith is the work of God. Um, so I think I think this idea of faith being something that is God given needs to be something that we maybe take a second look at, as not necessarily being exclusively a work of man, but something that God does for us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, I was looking at the original language here in the Greek, and the verb tense is in the active um, state. So it's something that we're definitely participating in to receive, but the source of the gift, for sure, is Christ Jesus, His righteousness, the gift that we go to receive from him. So I think, yeah, I think you've said this before. Is it called synergy? There is God's part. There is your part. And there's no really parsing and and putting into fractions or percentages like who's doing what at what given time. I think it's more simple and uh, um, cohesive than that. You just, God gives you the word. You receive the word. By faith, you believe it and make it a part of your life. Is that what you're saying, Nick? Am I missing anything here? No, yeah, that's that's a very good way of, of putting it all together. So um, let's move forward here and talk about knowledge. Um, it shows up in verse 2, and it shows up again in verse 3. It also shows up in verses 5 and 6 as part of what I call the ladder of virtue. Um, verse 8? No, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, verse 8, verse yep. 8. And they're different words, I think, too. Yeah, so, uh, Alex, talk to us a little bit about uh, knowledge here, and do you have any insight from the original language concerning knowledge? Well, I could be be off, right? So there's not a rock-solid case to be made from the original language. However, I think if you were reading this in the Greek, you would notice that in verse 2 and in verse 3 and in verse 8, the word for knowledge in my translation, is translated as true knowledge because Mm. it's the word epigenosis as opposed to verses 5 and 6, which is the word gnosis. So gnosis means knowledge. Epigenosis adds this prefix uh, uh, part of it, the epi part. And so what does that mean? Well, I mean, it could just be another word for knowledge, right? It's okay to use synonyms in different languages. Right. Uh, However... 
I like the definition given by uh, 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 who is it? The forgetting the the dictionary now. Somewhere not, not someone vines. has said <laughs> Thayers. Thayer. Thayers. Thank you. Okay. So sometimes I use BDAG, sometimes I use Thayers. Anyway, Thayers Greek lexicon says that epigenosis is a precise and correct knowledge. And I think that Peter might be honing in on something in contrast to the false teachers of chapter 2. And so I think the false teachers of chapter 2 are probably going to be saying that they have some sort of correct knowledge that is different above and beyond, better than what they've already received, perhaps the next level, if you will. But that Peter says, no, no, uh, you already have the epigenosis. You already have the true knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And I pray that that be... uh, uh, the source from which grace and peace can be multiplied to you. In other words, you don't have to be anxious or worried that you're missing out on something. And I think that's that fits the context of the false teachers of the letter. What do you think, Nick? Well, I, I knew this was going to be a, a question today, so I went and grabbed a, a lexicon. And um, <laughs> no, I, I think you're on the right track there. And it depends on who you read. Some make a big deal about the difference between epigenosis and gnosis. Um, others, not so much. Um, there's one more occurrence, by the way, 3 verse 18 of Second Peter, where knowledge shows up again um, All right. in the book, uh, growing the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but um, it was common for these original language terms to kind of overlap in meaning, but it is also kind of telling that when you do the work of looking at the various lexicons um, and Bible dictionaries, uh, they do make a distinction. For example, this is Lonida um, for the word epignosis, the content of what is definitely known. And then you turn over to gnosis, and it's just the content of what is known. So um, similar but different, it seems, um, when it comes to a uh, uh, the, the lexicons and what you find concerning um, epignosis and gnosis. Just just slight difference there in knowledge. There are some who even talk about um, knowledge here, the epignosis focusing on conversion and and you can have gnosis before you're converted to Christ and epignosis after, but I don't know if that's even necessary to make a distinction there. But um, again, you, you do run across some of these distinctions in the language. Right, and I think even if there isn't a subtlety, uh, a little hint being given by Peter here, you're still not going to miss out on the big point of the whole letter when you get right. into chapter 2. So could be, uh, it's interesting, interesting discussion. Well, uh, let's press forward here. Um, Something that's probably going to take a little time to explain is what's found in verse 4, where Peter says that he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Alex, yeah. can yeah, can you put this in a suitcase for us so that we can take it with us? Um, this well, this well, idea of partakers of the divine nature. I want to back up to the last part of verse three, though. Yeah, 
where it yep. says, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Uh, I just want to see first, Nick, do you have any thoughts on what it means to be called by his glory and excellence? Um, Not off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's okay. I didn't see this at first, but what caught my attention is that that little phrase at the end, that he called us by his own glory and excellence, you see that idea of glory used again in verse 17 when he's recounting the incidents of the transfiguration. Right. So uh, maybe we'll hold on to that little nugget for a few more minutes, and then we'll get to the transfiguration. But yeah, let's start in verse 4. What does it mean when he says we have these promises and that there's some connection between these promises and being partakers of the divine nature. Um, this is not something that I think will jump out at you right at first, but here's where I track on this. And again, like you said, Nick, it might take uh, more than just one podcast to fully flesh this out, but let me see if I can give some bullet points here. So as far as his precious and magnificent promises... I think there might be specific promises that Peter has in mind. And the reason I say this is because when you read Paul in Romans chapter 4, Paul really hones in on the promise given to Abraham that his descendants, his seed, would be like the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky. And if you go back and look at how the early church interpreted this and how Second Temple Judaism interpreted this, and you read Paul's letters, I think you'll find Paul in agreement as to what that promise meant. And the promise about being like the stars is was not just taken quantitatively as in numerous. You're going to have all these descendants. And we know that that's fulfilled in Christ through the church. So all of us, Jew and Gentile, worldwide, are a part of the one body of Christ by faith in Christ. So that's quantitative. That's the sands of the seashore. Mm -hmm. But then there's this qualitative aspect where Paul says that in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, that the promise had to do with Abraham being the inheritor of the cosmos. The entire cosmos uh, includes all of creation. It includes the stars. It includes not just the land and ruling the nations, but being like the stars themselves. And this requires you to understand that the way biblical writers talked about stars, uh, they talked about stars as if they were divine beings. These are, in our modern day Christian language, we would call them angels. They thought the stars were basically angels. Um, this has to do with their supernatural worldview. It has to do with the idea of uh, Deuteronomy 4.19, uh, if you're a part of God's people, you do not look up at the stars and the sun and the moon to worship the heavenly host because those are created beings and you worship the creator, Yahweh. So anyway, bringing it all back to Second Peter chapter 4, the promise is that if we are to become like the stars, that is uh, a divine nature that we will partake of. That's the resurrection body. And so Paul hones in on this in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, also, um, Jesus says 
that in the resurrection, we will be made like the angels. You remember that? Yeah. So if they thought angels and stars are the same thing, and you see that in Revelation. Revelation, you see that the seven stars are the seven angels of the, of the seven churches. Um, if angels and stars are the same thing, and if believers in Christ Jesus, descendants of Abraham, are going to be made like the stars qualitatively, then I think this is a statement about the resurrection and the kind of body we're going to have at the resurrection. And basically, this in the, in the world of, of scholarly literature, this is called theosis. This is called um, deification. This is called angelification. In other words, you'll be made like Christ in a resurrected-like body. And I think that's going to tie into why Jesus, why Peter picks the transfiguration story for his uh, reference to his, his witness and, and testimony. Well, Nick, I don't know if I covered all the bullet points there, but <laughs> what do you think there? I think even in the in the the, the original language, the word nature there uh, has a connotation to species, like the stuff that you're made of. But I, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts, Nick? Um, yeah, so uh, the, the big word is theosis, um, and uh, they also use words like deification, uh, divinization, illumination, and others. Um, and if, if I can put this, because it's it's there's a lengthy discussion that for some reason the Western Church isn't part of, um, and I think it's because we tend to focus on words like sanctification, and, and they're similar. It's a similar idea, similar concept, but different from the Eastern Orthodox um, idea of theosis. And there's a lengthy discussion that that is there in the Eastern literature. Um, theosis it means um, it well it, it doesn't mean that we become gods, um, at least in the sense of being um, becoming God or merging with God as this kind of impersonal force. No, um, no one it, no one takes the place of Yahweh. In right. It, so we don't participate in God's essence, but they say we participate in the energies of God as as he reveals himself to us in creation. Um there is some mysticism there. Um uh but it's something that we can do now and it's something that'll culminate in the resurrection body. And and so to to get back to the second Peter one verse four text here about uh, this is the key text right here become partakers of the divine nature um that's this idea of the the process of participating in god's holiness um and we do that of course through the through the work of christ uh, who dwells in us um that enables us to become more Christ-like. And, right, right. And, and especially the last part of the verse, which says that we um, escape the corruption of the world, that's part of this as well. It's part of our resistance to sin and an increase in the practice of holiness and, and holy attitudes. 
I think in our churches, we already have a strong doctrine for this. It's called the uh, eternal purpose of God for us to be transformed into the image of Christ, right? Right, right. So this is the other half of that teaching. The first half is the inner transformation where your very character and uh, soul becomes more like Jesus through the exercise of faith and diligence and perseverance on earth. But as this earthly body begins to shed, as you... Uh, Prepare to lay aside your earthly dwelling, your your earth your taber your earthly tabernacle, as Peter will put it. That is to finish the process where you've been inwardly transformed into the image of Christ through faith in Christ, and in the resurrection you finish that process by putting on the Christ-like angelic-like body material uh, to to be your new tabernacle, your new home for all eternity. So that's what I got. Well, and, and yeah, so I, I mentioned sanctification earlier, and, and I think you hit on the other side of this. There's another Western church concept called mortification. <laughs> that's the actual putting sin to death within us. Um, and I think I think theosis kind of tries to capture both of those concepts of just this the continual process of um, experiencing more and more of the work of the Holy Spirit by grace um, uh, within us. And so um, not to say that we acquire more of the Holy Spirit because we've got him, but just we, we come to experience more and more of of what he does for us in holiness and perfection, um, and so we, and, and so we come to experience this union with God in Christ, and and that is both the means and the motives for attaining perfection. If you want to know more about this, if you want to read more about it, <laughs> um, like I said, there's a lengthy discussion that has taken place in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, and you can look up just theosis, T-H-E-O-S-I-S, -S, via Google, and it'll pull up articles from the Eastern Church that, that explains this in more detail. So, The most but, uh, fascinating part to me, Nick, is that this discussion already existed at the time of Jesus before the Church even started. Yeah. They were having this well-thought-out uh, conversation on the promise given to Abraham and how that ultimately looks forward to a transformation of the body. And the only thing the church did is we realized and recouched the same discussion in terms of fulfillment through Christ Jesus. Like Again, like we've been saying, more could be said, but we want to move forward here and deal with uh, what I call the ladder of virtue um, verses um, five and following. Um, uh, so Peter, he emphasizes here faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Wait, 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 Nick. I didn't yeah. hear all the fruits of the Spirit in there. Uh, right? I mean, what? <laughs> Peter, Peter, why Why did you focus on these? Um and, and where's the fruit of the Spirit? Um, Alex, can you give us some insight as to why Peter emphasizes these? 
as opposed to maybe the fruit of the Spirit? Well, Paul wrote about the fruits of the Spirit, and we all know Peter and Paul are competing. So <laughs> which list do you like better? Do you like Peter's fruits of the Spirit better or Paul's fruits of the Spirit list better? I, I think Paul's is longer, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, you have some common attributes in there, but... Why does Peter choose these particular qualities, these particular... What do you call it? The ladder of virtue? Yeah, that's right. Okay. I call it the divine macrame. Nick, you know what a macrame is? I have no idea. <sighs> Me is neither. it a musical term? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, although it might be close. I had to look this up. A macrame is the art of tying... Uh, knots together like into a braid in order to create some sort of design ah. so uh, instead of looking at it as one step that leads to the next step that leads to the next step that brings you higher and higher i look at it as uh, several different cords all being intertwined into one to create a desired image or pattern known as the christ-like christian that's the way i put it but there does there's got to be a reason why Peter picks these specific virtues. I mean, these aren't comprehensive. You have more words than this in the Bible to talk about good things that we need to have about our character. So any ideas, Nick? Um, again, any, any guess that we put forward would be kind of speculative. But uh, if I were to speculate, this is Peter's exhortation to Christians concerning what they are to do, whereas the fruit of the Spirit, that's what the Spirit does within us. And so God, you know, He, he, does, he, he does His work within us, but He expects us uh, to participate in that work in some way, to have divine sovereignty mingling with human responsibility, as is typically the case throughout Scripture. And so this is Peter's exhortation to us concerning what we are to do and how we are to live a godly life. So so you start with faith, and then you build on that with virtue, um, and then you add knowledge and add self-control to that. But even then, I mean, I get there, and it's like, well, but self-control is also the work of the Holy Spirit. So even that kind of collapses on itself, but uh, what do you think? Um, I think you do make a good point about what it is the Christian contributes to their uh, own uh, Christian walk, to their own transformation. Um, we don't want to take credit away from where credit's due. I mean, some plant, some water, God gives the increase, right? So he's the right. source of all growth. But you got to also take some of this language seriously. So he says, applying all diligence in verse 5. The word applying, applying there is uh, paris fero, uh, and it means to contribute besides to something. So in other words, there's something there, but you're throwing in your contribution, uh, if you will. So these things are to be put forth through our diligence, through our contribution into our, our faith, into our Christian walk. So I would say, okay, we have this list. However, these specific qualities, they don't, like, let's say you're going through the list. You got uh, applying in your faith, moral excellence, then knowledge, then self-control, then perseverance. Let's say if we just stop there. If you 
get to perseverance, you're like, I've built this one, 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 one. Does that mean that you haven't yet achieved any godliness? And if you achieve godliness, does that mean you haven't yet achieved any brotherly kindness? Well, if you haven't achieved any brotherly kindness, does that mean you don't have to love because you haven't achieved brotherly kindness? Well, no, they're not exclusive. They're all wrapped into one. This is a, this is a pile. This is a heap that goes together. But the heap, I think, is in contrast to what the false prophets are. I mean, if you go to chapter 2, which we're not there yet, but I think this is Peter's way of saying, look at these guys. Are they telling you to apply diligence in your faith? Are they, t are they teaching you moral excellence? Are they teaching you self-control? Are they teaching you perseverance or godliness or brotherly kindness or love? I think the answer is no, they're not. And right. that is why we are becoming transformed like Christ and why they are becoming uh, transformed into vessels made for destruction. I really want to emphasize something that you mentioned there about, um, you know, we, we don't finish one and start the other, that they, they're, all, they're all mingled together, and, and God, He enables us, um, and by the Holy Spirit, He empowers us to cultivate and develop these virtues, um, and, and it's a process, uh, kind of like sanctification, kind of like mortification, kind of like theosis, however you want to say that. It's, it's an ongoing process as we become more and more like Christ right. and less and less like the world. Um, I did want to just run through these very quickly. And, yeah, go for it. Um, so faith, faith is, uh, as, as I've understood it, is trust in God, trust in Christ, and, and so these other virtues are going to kind of spring from that virtue. Maybe your translation says moral excellence. This is Christ's moral excellence. It's the kind of conduct that God requires from us through His Word, knowledge, um, all the, the all treasures of uh, wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, so this must be knowledge either about Christ, or it could be even Christ's knowledge that uh, we are cultivating, self-control, um, self-discipline, self-restraint, um, from those sinful desires that uh, Peter just mentioned there in verse 4, steadfastness or patience or perseverance, just a willingness to hold on regardless of the circumstances, godliness, um, the pursuit of godly behavior, the practice of it, brotherly affection. We get our English word Philadelphia from this, and this is just uh, family-like affection um, and devotion to one another. It's the feelings, and this is why I'm... Um, a huge critic of the idea that gets floated out there sometimes by some brethren that um, you know you have to love your brothers, but you don't have to like them, and that's just gobbledygook heresy. That uh, the Greek word for that is pronounced baloney. Um, brotherly affection are those subjective feelings. Love uh, is kind of that objective, overarching desire to see Christ in them, um, and I. I don't think you can have one without the other. So um, those are the qualities in brief. And uh, thankfully, Peter already said uh, he wanted grace and peace to be multiplied <laughs> to us at the beginning of the letter because right. we fall short of those qualities uh, from time to time, don't we, Nick? Definitely. It's, a, it's the high calling of holiness. I have a doozy for you, Nick. In verse 10, uh -huh. he says... Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Now, uh, is this predestination, Nick, calling and choosing? Yep, sure is. 
the the way I've explained this um, before is that the calling and the choosing, um, uh, specifically here, this is how um, the the calling is the call to put these things into practice. The choosing is that God has selected us uh, through the gospel and through our obedience to the gospel uh, in order to put these things uh, into practice. Um, now, it's possible to fall away. He's going to... He says at the end of verse 10, you know, if you practice these things, you will never fall. You can't, you can't make a threat and there be no teeth to it, and there's no way it can follow through. So It's a good point. Um, <clears throat> so when it comes to... Um, predestination, stuff like that. Um, as far as this is concerned, specifically, the practice of these qualities is what we have been called and chosen for. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, I'm tracking with that. And I think uh, predestination is a loaded term, right? And right. so when we say it in the Western world here, we usually mean um, Calvinism. We need the uh, the predestination under the uh, doctrines of, of TULIP, under the, yeah, all, all of that, the unconditional election. So if you look in the original language, it says his calling and choosing of you, plural. Right. If this was uh, the Texas translation, it'd be y'all, his calling and, all cho- y'all. Yeah. and choosing of all y'all. So this actually has a name and a longstanding tradition to it, and it's just called the idea of corporate election. In other words, we have been elected, we have been chosen in Christ, in other words, the arena, the body, the sphere in which God has chosen are is called Christ. And so what has not been chosen, therefore, that it doesn't necessarily follow that each individual that would be in Christ, that is yet to be seen. Because we have yet to see who will answer the call of the gospel as an individual and who will persevere in the gospel for the individual already in the arena of Christ, meaning that you're in Christ, but the door is not locked. You can walk out of that arena anytime you want, and you can prove it to everyone by the way in which you live. So, yeah, I think it's corporate predestination, but corporate predestination does not necessitate the individual predestination. So that's where I think... That's a good. That's a good way. And, and another way I've explained it concerning, especially the idea of predestination, is that God. And you, I think you see this, especially in Ephesians chapter one, although some kind of hijack it and make it say something else. But God, He predestined the plan, and He predestined the man, um, and that is the plan of our salvation through Christ Jesus the Lord. Um, yeah. In terms of of predestining um, people, um, and you know the that Christ only died for certain people, the elect, limited atonement. I think that is um, how can I say this in the strongest terms? That is ungodly heresy. <laughs> um, so, um, all right, we. I, I think, do want. I think of it yeah, this way. I give a quick analogy. Every Saturday, Nick, I have a meetup Bible study. So on meetup.com, I set up an invitation, and anybody can see the invitation. 
but I never know who's going to actually show up to the study until the study happens. So I've predestined uh, that that Bible study would take place by me on Saturday at a certain time. But who actually gets to receive the teaching of that study? Whoever shows up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great illustration. Um, uh, let's see. Let's let's skip down to, um, and I hate to do that, but um, for the sake of time, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Sure. Um, and, and we'll start with um, uh, verses... Yeah, 16 through 18, where Peter talks about the the transfiguration story. And he says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and we were there on the mountain with him, the holy mountain, when we heard the voice and all that. Um, Alex, why does he choose the transfiguration story here to emphasize, and what point is he emphasizing? Nick, that's a good question. I scratched my head over that for a while, thinking, you know, all Peter had to say was, I walked and talked and camped out with Jesus for three years. <laughs> yeah. So why just this one incident Peter decides to hone in on? The transfiguration. Well, it's in, it's in all the Gospels, right? So, um, well, actually, is it in John? I don't know if it's in uh, John. I don't. I don't recall it. No, it's not. In John, it's not in John, right? But it's in all three synoptics. Yeah, it's in the it, yeah. synoptics: uh, Matthew seventeen, Mark nine, Luke nine. And here's what happens. So I was, I've been studying Deuteronomy. I've mentioned that before. And one thing in Deuteronomy it mentions is the appearance of God on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And how does He show up? Well, He shows up in a giant, dark thundercloud uh, storm. He becomes a pillar of fire on top of the mountain. And there's like, if you if you read the uh, the Song of Moses at the end of the chapter, in, in chapter 33, it talks, uh, in 34, it talks about um, lightning flashing back and forth. And so it's, a, it's an intense scene, and his voice goes out from the fire. Uh, this is recounted in Exodus 19, I believe. It goes out from the fire so that all the people can hear what God says. And the people hear, and they see, and they are terrified. And they say... We will, we will listen, we will obey, uh, but Moses, will you go get the rest of the message for us because we're terrified? <laughs> and so, yeah. so Moses does, and God says, hey, that's, that's, that's a good answer. I like that. So Moses gets the rest of the message, brings it down, um, that whole thing. So anyway, the transfiguration is kind of a replay of Mount Sinai because it mm. says a God showed up in a cloud, but the Gospels never talk about what that cloud looks like. It never says God showed up in a bright white cloud and it was a blue-skied right. sunny day. It doesn't say that. I think the image we're supposed to get is God showing up on the same cloud he always shows up on in the Old Testament, which is a huge, scary, black thunderstorm cloud. And so he shows up and the apostles are terrified and it says they're trembling and they're on the ground and they couldn't think to say anything else other than can we make you some tents Moses Elijah Jesus but God's voice comes out of the cloud and they hear the voice and he says this is my son listen to him and then it disappears and they look up and they just see Jesus and uh, you have Jesus there fulfilling a Moses like attribute where they get to hear God's voice but then the mediator steps in to finish the teaching, to finish the message, and that's Jesus. 
But of course, who is he standing next to? Moses, Elijah, the past mediators, the law, the prophets. Okay, so here's what this has to do with Second Peter chapter 1. Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all, uh, their appearance is not like earthly human appearance. Their bodies are literally changed into something different and glorious, like the angelic entourage that showed up with God at Mount Sinai. So I think that Peter hones in on this specific thing to say, hey, I've seen what a transfigured body looks like. I've seen what our bodies will eventually look like in the resurrection. I've seen it myself. And so I can tell you that this promise made to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, given to us, it's happening, and I know what it looks like. And so he hones in on that specific instance to prove that there is going to be a resurrection and that that resurrection is going to have a physical, deified, godly body. However, there's a prerequisite. If you want the outer godly transformation, you first have to take the time in this life to do the inner godly transformation so that's what i think about that i think that's all spot on and i just i want to build a bit more on <clears throat> the the comparison between transfi the mount of transfiguration and mount sinai because i think it's especially pertinent to where he's going when he's gonna this is this text here verses 16 through 21 is a very strong statement concerning the inspiration of scriptures uh, of the scriptures because what what he, that, in other words that that the bible is the word of god what he's saying is we were there all right we were we were eyewitnesses of his majesty this is comparable to what john does at the beginning of his first epistle where he says that we have seen and heard and touched and and handled and all this stuff they were they are eyewitnesses of the majesty of god and and as eyewitnesses, they're writing, and and what they wrote is truth, um, nothing short of even the word of God. Um, and so you know when God is is present in the revelatory process, um, that's what we should expect. Not you know I heard it from or I got it from, but they were there. We that we saw this happen. We beheld His glory. And we heard the voice of the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This very strong statement for uh, the origin of the message and, and also um, a very strong statement concerning um, the Old Testament scriptures as well. Um, these men, they didn't write by the will of man. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And they had Mount Sinai, and now we have Mount of Transfiguration. And, and so there should be no question as to the origin and source of the message. Now, Nick, what does this have to do at all with the morning star? What's the morning star? That is a very good question. Um, and there's, there's, there's a lot uh, in prophecy concerning the morning star. Um, and especially when you get to, uh, what, the book of Revelation, it shows up there, and just, just this imagery of, of, of the, the morning star being applied to Christ. Um, right. And, 
it could be that Peter is alluding to like Numbers uh, 24 and verse 17, a star will come out of Jacob. Right, the, um, the blessing prophecy of Balaam. And so, yeah, so um, it's probably here. Now, in prophecy, the morning star can mean different things, but here it seems that what Peter is honing in on is Christ, um, just like in other places it the morning star can apply to Christ. But specifically here, um, he's the morning star. He's the one who's going to rise in our hearts. Um, and um, even that's an interesting concept. Do you have anything on how the morning star rises in our hearts? I have a guess. So he says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right. So. The day dawning, I think, is resurrection language, the day of judgment, the, the day in which we'll, we'll be raised to our new bodies. So I think it's going to be consistent with the idea of, of resurrection and resurrection body, uh, as, as I've been you know, saying for the whole chapter. Uh, the morning star, as you said, in Revelation is equated to uh, Jesus himself. So uh, Revelation twenty two sixteen it says the morning star is Jesus. Now, in astrolom uh, astrology, let's just say that, um, well, astronomy, yeah, maybe it's astronomy. The morning star is the first star that was seen in the sky uh, at sunrise, and that star was Venus. It was the planet Venus. Now, they saw stars, again, as being representative or actually being divine beings, angelic figures, and you have this combined with the idea that a star is going to rise out of Judah, Numbers 24, and that uh, talks about the scepter, and that ties into Psalm 2 with Jesus inheriting the nations, and then you bring that back into Revelation that talks about Jesus saying uh, to some of the churches that he writes to, if you persevere, if you overcome, uh, you will sit on a throne and rule over the nations just as my Father has sat me on a throne for me to rule over the nations. And so I think the idea here is that the day dawning is the resurrection. The morning star arising in our hearts is uh, bringing this back to Ephesians uh, where it says, you know, pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That inward faith becomes the seed which transforms, which grows, uh, which transfigures us into our resurrection body. So I think it's just another way of saying that um, because your inner man was transformed into the image of Christ, that is going to rise on the day of the resurrection and uh, cause you to inherit your outer image of Christ, your resurrection body, and then you'll uh, rise to rule uh, over uh, the nations with Christ. So if I'm hearing you right, there's, there's two things in view here. There's the event... Um, which would be as eschatological right. in the time, right? But there's also the experience that now we're being changed and um, illuminated, enlightened by the morning star, Christ Himself, and so it's got an interior impact now as we're being changed. But there's going to be a full and final realization of that at the end of time. Right? Is that fair? It's the metaphor that's real. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, um, final thoughts. Final thoughts as we kind of close things down here. Uh, 
Well, Nick, I think for me, um, this just makes the Christian experience of persevering, growing, being the hands and feet of Christ Jesus right now uh, even more special because it's a part of the process leading to the resurrection. And so it's not just, I've always viewed it as two separate events. You know what I'm saying? There's this life and then there's the resurrection life. And it's almost like, ah, you just got to get through this life so that you can get to the resurrection life. But the more I read about it and the more I think about Second Peter, the more I see that these are intertwined, that your the life you live right now is the transformation that just culminates in the resurrection. And so there's no divide between this life and next life. It's you are living the eternal life now, but it has to grow and it has to be transformed and it will culminate in your bodily resurrection. And just to, to kind of build on that, one of the things that we didn't bring up was Peter's use of the word diligent. And, right. Um, and I think that's an important um, component here is diligence. Our, our faith is supposed to be real. It's supposed to be evident by faithful behavior. Um, and so we need to be diligent in pursuing that, that faithful behavior and, and pursuing real faith in Christ, and and that's what's going to enable us to grow, and if we grow, and this is spoiler alert for chapter two next week, we won't be like the false teachers, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so growth is vital, it's essential, um, it begins with faith and should culminate in love for others, and that's your ladder of virtue right there in a nutshell. Um, you know, Nick, we need, yeah. I was just going to say, I used to work at a restaurant. I used to work at Outback Steakhouse. And when we were, uh, I did busing and then I did serving. And so in both positions, my boss would always tell me that you have to maintain a sense of urgency. Otherwise, you're not going to get your job done. And so that was key, was throughout the entire shift to maintain a continual sense of urgency. And when I think about that, uh, I wonder... Uh, do I need to be reminded, like you said, to be more diligent, to maintain that sense of urgency in my Christian walk, to make the most of the time that I've been given now here on earth? And that's such an excellent point. Urgency, um, the the sense of of um, being diligent, and and especially, and this is kind of the wrap up of the the chapter, especially when it concerns God's word. Because we have that uh, prophetic word um, more certain, and and we do have even the very thoughts of God communicated by His Holy Spirit through men, through uh, through the ages, even on down to us today. And we should never take that for granted. We should be diligent in in examining His Scriptures. Part of the reason we started this podcast was with the intent that people would get their head in the Word, and, and hopefully we can facilitate that. So Absolutely. Well, Nick... Well, that, yeah, that's it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's remind our audience to look at our website. Now, the website is swordplay.cast.rocks. 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 
Also, be sure to send us an email at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And search the iTunes store, yep. Swordplay. You can also find us on Google Play, like us, and write a review. Hopefully a positive one. That'd be nice. Yeah. And we'll, <laughs> hey, I, if you write a review, we'll read it on, on the air. So, And if you send us a question at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, we will answer the question on the air. So be sure to interact with us, repost it to your Facebook, Twitter, social media. Help us to get the word out if you find this podcast helpful at all. Any words, any final thoughts, Nick? Listen next week. We're going to continue on to Second Peter chapter 2. All right. Well, that's another episode of Swordplay, and we'll see you next time.